Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's great to be here with you again. And uh, why don't you open with me, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. And we are going to begin just by reading the passage, and then I'll give some introductory comments as we get into the message here. Revelation, chapter 3, verse 14. 14, this is the word of God. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Heavenly Father, as we consider this passage of your word this morning together, I'm so grateful for your faithfulness to speak truth to us, to reveal yourself to us. And I'm also keenly aware of my inability, my insufficiency, my incompetency when it comes to share on this passage, let alone to apply it and live it out in my own life. And so, Lord, we ask for your guidance, your insight by the power of your Holy Spirit to lead us through this passage this morning. And God, we ask even more to help us, God, glean what you may be saying to us to be the one who has the ear to hear what the Spirit is saying to our hearts individually, corporately, communally, that you would instruct us and teach us about yourself, God, through this important and severe passage this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I've learned uh, the lesson the hard way that when somebody asks you if you want to uh, fill in for them on a Sunday, it's good to ask what the passage is going to be before you agree to it. And, you know, there's a lot of passages in the Bible that would warrant that um, 
discernment <laughs> to be able to say, what are we, what, what is it that you want me to teach on uh, before we go into uh, committing to that? But this is definitely one of those passages. So when Paul told me that he was going through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation and that I would be doing Laodicea, I was like, you know what, I think, I think maybe I do have something I, I need to do that day. I won't be able to, to be there. Um, and the challenge that I ran into through reading, studying, preparing for this passage is that there obviously is a historical context, and we're going to go through some of those details. But it's, it's almost easier to just think about the historical setting and kind of at an arm's length or keep at a distance really the heart of the passage. I found it very challenging as I studied this, very convicting for my own life. I knew that I would moving into it, especially just because of the season of our life and my life personally, that this was going to be a very convicting message. And so not just the general topic of the message of the letter to the church of Laodicea, but personally for me, I knew it was going to be a great challenge. And I I hope some of that comes out uh, through uh, what I have prepared to share with you this morning. And I hope that rings out even more powerfully than just the details behind the historical setting and what was going on with the church there in Laodicea. And kind of to bring it a little bit to a point, in Bible college, in 2009, I was taking a class, church history. And of course, one of the things that we did was we looked at this idea that some scholars have brought up about the letters to the churches in Revelation, that there could be a what's called a prophetic historical kind of interpretation, that it seems like there's some similarities between what's written to the churches in Revelation and what has taken place throughout church history. And so I, we had this project. Um, our final project was to develop a timeline and to try to look at those similarities and lay them out. And so I worked hard on my project, and I ended up getting 100%. And she said, probably nobody's going to get 100% in this class. I ended up getting 100% on uh, the project, and I even got a little, a little wow with two exclamation points here. And, you know, what helped was when I put this together, and I did one for each church, and here's one example. Here's to the church of Laodicea. Uh, What helped was being married to a graphic designer. So I just had to come up with the information, and she put it all together nice and fancy, and we got it professionally printed and everything. And so I think that's what, that's, um, that was what impressed the professor more than anything. But here's the thing, and this is the point I'm trying to make. I might have gotten 100% on the project in church history, but when I look at this passage, I feel like I definitely do not get 100% in living up to what Jesus is communicating to his church here. I feel like I fail in so many ways. And so to have the responsibility, the privilege, but the responsibility to share from this passage, uh, I get what's... There's a common phrase uh, that's used today, um, what's called imposter syndrome. 
that I would come and have the privilege, the responsibility of teaching this passage and yet feel so convicted by it at the same time that I feel unworthy to even utter a word about this passage. I am grateful to be here. I am grateful despite the subject matter that I was invited to share and teach. It's a, it's a really great honor. And this church feels in a lot of ways like a second home to us as we try to navigate this season of our lives. And just a few comments on that. I know I've shared before, but um, there's some new faces in here. So my name is Adam Wilson, and I was a pastor uh, for many years at a church here in Santa Rosa. Uh, about a year and a half ago or so, we transitioned from that and tried to process and pray through what God might uh, be leading us into. Really didn't know what that would look like. It was a very challenging, very seemingly dark season for us. It still is in many ways. Um, but towards the end of last year, God began to put it on our heart to consider really this vision he had given us a few years before that just kind of got put on the back burner and to start a ministry. And so we incorporated a ministry called Wilson Family Ministries. And among other things, kind of the flagship element of that ministry is to bring awareness and resources to uh, the area of emotional health. So I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in the middle of a continuing emotional slash mental health pandemic. And it existed before the COVID-19 pandemic, but the COVID-19 pandemic served to magnify or expose what was already um, going on in our people's hearts and in our community. And we felt like we needed a big, we needed, we had a lot of need in that area. And we realized that others did as well. And so we felt led to start a ministry, and that's been established, and it's still kind of in the infancy stages, um, but we just wanted to share that with you, and if you have any questions about that or would like to hear more about what we're doing in that ministry, we'd love to share that uh, more with you. I'm going to read the passage again, because sometimes we can read, and uh, at least for me, I'm a pretty distracted person. It can go in one eye and out the other, so to speak. And so we're going to read the passage again, and then we're going to look into it some more. So again, this is Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea writes, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am. Stand, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
So as with all the other six letters that have come before, that Paul has faithfully shared with you guys this morning, Jesus addresses a specific church there in Asia Minor and begins with the familiar words, to the angel, the messenger of the church, and in this case, it's Laodicea. Let's talk about a little bit about Laodicea. So Laodicea, just like the other churches, is located in Asia Minor and happened to be right there. Uh, and actually, you might have pointed this out in one of your messages, but it's interesting that as John wrote this letter from the island of Patmos, which you can see there off to the lower left of the churches that are represented there, he listed them in order, clockwise order, from Ephesus around and finishing at Laodicea, the last letter today. And so those were the churches that these letters were addressed to. And in a lot of ways, they represented the universal church. In other words, as Paul had pointed out in his messages, let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church is. So this was a specific letter to a specific church, but it was applicable to all the churches for all time. And so Laodicea is right there in the Lycus River Valley. And you can see that it's uh, near a couple of other uh, areas that are mentioned also in the Bible, Colossae and Hierapolis. And it was a major trade route. It was along a major trade route. And it was a very strategic city. And during the Roman Empire, it grew to be a very wealthy city, a very extremely wealthy city. And you can kind of see that in the passage there. But it was 11 miles to the west of Colossae. So that would be where uh, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, the church in Colossae there. And then in that letter, he also mentions, in Colossians, he also mentions the church that's in Hierapolis, which is to the north. So Laodicea is positioned about 11 miles, 10 or 11 miles to the west of Colossae, and about six miles to the south of Hierapolis. And this is going to come into play in our message here. As I mentioned, it was a very affluent city. In fact, scholars say that uh, it was devastated by an earthquake in AD 60. And unlike one of its neighbors, Philadelphia, that was devastated in an earthquake before and asked for imperial help from Rome to rebuild it, Laodicea said, you know what? We have enough money. We can rebuild it ourselves. We can take care of this. We don't need any help from Rome. We're able to rebuild on our own. They were a self-made a self-reliant city. In fact, Laodicea means literally people ruling or people deciding. It was very fitting. They were famous for a few things, and uh, one pastor that I listened to put it into an alliteration with W, so it helps you remember a little bit. Of course, they were famous for their wealth. Something else that they were famous for was their wool. They had found a way through... um, special breeding of these black sheep to be able to get a very fine, soft wool that they, were, that they used for their textile industry. And uh, all the latest fashions and great clothing came out of the area of Laodicea there. They're also known for their medical wonders. Uh, in fact, they had a school of medicine there, and uh, it was so prominent and so important that even their coins, a lot of their coins that were minted, for money, had uh, the images of of well-known physicians in the area there in Laodicea. And so they were known for their wealth, their wool, their medical wonders, banking. They were a major banking 
uh, city. As I mentioned, their clothing, their fashion, their ointments. But they were infamous. They were famous for those things, but they were infamous for something else. And what they were infamous for was their water. They didn't have their own water supply. Uh, They had to ship it in from other locations. And that comes into play in our text here. Of course, Laodicea is mentioned somewhere else in the Bible. It's mentioned in the book of Colossians, actually four times it's mentioned there. But apparently, Paul, who wrote the letter to the Colossians, he'd never visited Colossae or Laodicea. That's something we have in common. I haven't visited it either. I hope to someday to go see the ruins. That would be wonderful. So this is to the angel of the church of Laodicea. And we're going to talk more about how these geographical, topographical elements come into play in Jesus' description, comments, and rebuke to the church in Laodicea. In the second part of verse 14 there, it says, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Let's look at that word, Amen, for a moment. It's a very familiar word to us. It's like putting a period at the end of a prayer for us. We do that a lot, right? Well, it's a Hebrew word, acknowledging the veracity, the truthfulness of something. That's why we use it at the end of the prayer. Have you ever wondered, why do we say amen at the end of a prayer? It's kind of formulaic, right? Well, it's a very powerful word in its original meaning. It can mean a lot of things. And in our, when we pray, and we pray in Jesus' name and we say amen at the end. Uh, not only does it tell somebody that we're done praying, <laughs> and now it's their turn, um, but basically what it does is when we agree with the prayer through the amen, it's essentially like putting a stamp on it saying, let it be so, or it is true. Uh, it would be akin to when Jesus says, truthfully, truthfully, truly, truly, or, or verily, verily, I say unto you. There's this idea of a, a veracity behind the amen. And here is the first time, the only time within scripture where God, Jesus, calls himself the amen. And it may be a little bit of a nod to a passage in Isaiah chapter 65 and verse 16, where God says this, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the God of truth. And the Hebrew word there is amen. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth or amen. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. And of course, we read this morning, I thought it was very fitting and probably planned that way. And we sang the song that all um, promises in Jesus are yes and amen. It comes from a passage that was read this morning to us by Miss Lori. 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through the amen, through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Of God, And so we have a verse there in uh, 2 Corinthians that lends to the reality that not only do we speak the amen in Christ, but as we see here in Revelation, that Jesus himself is the amen. He is the truth. And it kind of ties into the next phrase there in verse 14, the faithful and true witness. In fact, there's a little bit of a redundancy there. It could almost be said that he is the amen, that is to say, the faithful and true witness. Like the letters to the other six churches, there's a description here from uh, chapter 1. 
in a lot of the other letters, the description is borrowed from what Jesus looks like or uh, some feature of Jesus. And this is borrowed earlier in the chapter um, where it talks about Jesus being the faithful and true witness. And the contrast here is striking because unlike the Laodiceans in their hypocrisy of not being faithful and true witnesses as a church to their culture, Jesus himself is the faithful and true witness. The church there was not the true witness. They lacked personal authenticity. And Jesus is, as one commentator says, he is the personification of authenticity. When I thought about that personally, and even on my drive here as I was praying through and I was thinking about Lori's comments, um, the sweet hour of prayer and the time she's spending. Um, For me, sometimes it feels like the sweet 90 seconds of prayer. (laughs) Sweet minute and a half, if I can focus that long. And on the way here, as I was praying, I was thinking through that, and I was thinking, I really struggle with authenticity. I don't, I don't really know myself that well. In fact, when I pray to the Lord, one of the things that I struggle with is being authentic with him about who I am and what I need. I feel like I struggle with that because I don't really know. I have a really hard time with that. There's some blockage in my life, in my mind, maybe from things that I've experienced, maybe from lack of discipline in my life, where I just feel like I am not, I don't feel like an authentic person. Now, I feel like I am who I am when I'm in front of people and I'm trying to be transparent and vulnerable and share where my, you know, my, my life on my sleeve, as it were, because I want to be authentic. But deep down, there's areas in my life where I feel like I don't even know what exists there. And I need God to come and reveal authenticity in my life. I'm tired of not knowing who I really am. I know who I am in Christ. I'm a child of God. But how is that working into the deep areas of who I am, how he's made me, who he's created me to be? And so I was convicted by that even more as I'm thinking about Jesus being the personification of authenticity. If there's anybody who ever knew who he was and what he was here to do, it was Jesus. And I need help knowing that. And like the Laodiceans who lacked personal authenticity in their faith relationship uh, with Jesus, I feel like that's lacking in my life. And Jesus, I need help. I need to know I think this was the root of their failure to um, display faithfulness to God in their culture. There was so, much, so many surface-level things going on with the wealth and the culture and the fashion that nothing really went deep in their lives, certainly not the relationship with Jesus. And this is kind of the hard part about this passage, and you've probably heard it before, but in the prophetic historical context, scholars believe that, that we are living in the Laodicean church age. Now, whether that's true around the world or not, I can definitely see some similarities here in the U.S. In fact, here's a little bit of homework to do. and You can tune out after this as long as you do the homework. You should, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I, I listened to a sermon from 2010 by Francis Chan. It's called, the lukewarm, it's called Lukewarm and Loving It. And it's a very, very convicting sermon. And I encourage everybody, because I'm not going to share a lot of the th- ways that he shared, 
because uh, that wasn't the direction I felt the Lord leading me in. But I think that anybody would be convicted by that message. But basically, what he says is that if you live in the U.S., no matter what your economic status is comparatively, you are rich. You are rich. Over half of the world's population lives on $2 a day. The Bible defines somebody who's rich as somebody who has more than one set of clothing, more than one like piece of wardrobe. Somebody has, who has shoes or sandals. Somebody who has more than that by the biblical definition is rich. Now, there's a lot of us in this room that would probably say, I don't, you know, I don't consider myself rich because we're looking comparatively here in the U.S., especially, you know, Bay Area, where it feels like it's hard to eke out a living sometimes. But compared to the rest of the world, we are rich. And Francis Chan, in his message, says, uh, we look at other people and we think the things that are different about other people are weird. But really, percentage-wise, we're the weird people. We're the weird ones. The world would think that we're weird because we think that we are poor when we're really filthy, stinking rich. And so in a lot of ways, uh, our culture lends itself to the same culture that we see here in Laodicea. And so as we look deeper at this passage, we have to consider those similarities between us as a culture and Laodicea as a culture. Now, wealth isn't a bad thing, but it it does tend to lean to lead people to believe that they don't need God in areas of their lives, and that's the danger, right? The root of evil is the love of money, because when we have money, when we have provision, we don't need God. At least we don't think that we do, and even if we think we do, we don't live like we really do. It's kind of a surface level. It's inauthentic. And that's what the Laodicean church was. And so that's a, that is a warning to us, a, a sober reminder to us that even in our wealth, which we all have if we live here in the U.S., we all are able to eat, I'm, I'm assuming each of us in this um, in this room are able to eat more than once a day, at least once a day, but more than once a day. Uh, the other way that, that the Bible describes somebody who's, who's rich is uh, somebody who is able to have, they have provision to buy a meal right now. If you read through Deuteronomy, there's this indication towards people who are paying the laborers that they uh, make sure that at the end of the day, you give them the money that they earned because they need to buy their food to eat. And there's also a passage about if you uh, take from somebody their coat or their tunic, their, their, their covering, uh, as collateral, give it to them before the, before the beginning of the night because they're going to need it as a blanket to be kept warm. That, that's what it, most people lived like. So if you had more than that, you were considered rich. So again, 
those, uh, those kind of benchmarks, I think, are sobering reality to us. And so as we look at the rest of the verse there, uh, verse 14, where he says, I am the faithful and true witness. I am the personification of authenticity. Jesus had everything, and yet he submitted himself and surrendered himself to the Father wholly. He relied upon the Father for everything, um, especially during his earthly ministry here. But he wasn't just uh, humbled and um, made low to come down and live with us. He's also the ruler of God's creation. The ruler of God's creation. In other words, he is over all. He sees all and he knows all. He knows what the Laodiceans need. He knows what we need. And he knows how to supply what is lacking in their lives. They didn't think anything was lacking. But he saw and he knew that they had things that were lacking. That brings us to verse 15. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. I know your deeds. This is something that's mentioned in the letters to the other churches as well. I know your deeds. And usually it's followed by something that are, that are actual deeds. In this case, it doesn't seem like Jesus mentions any deeds. There's nothing there. What are the deeds? You are neither cold nor hot. Our sincere works, our sincere works, are our faith on display. And Laodicea, the church in Laodicea, did not have their faith on display. However, no specific works are mentioned here, as I mentioned. Rather, the lack of sincere works is pointed out. Notice that there is no commendation for Laodicea. In all the other churches, there was a commendation. And most churches, it was followed by a condemnation, some warning. In this church, there is no commendation. There is nothing positive to be said about the church of Laodicea. This has led scholars to be divided in their interpretation about um, the Laodicean church. Is Jesus speaking to believers or is he speaking to unbelievers who merely profess faith? For example, one commentator suggests the hot are the truly saved believers. The cold are those who are not believers and do not claim to be believers. The lukewarm are those who claim to believe in Jesus but are not truly regenerate believers. In contrast, another commentator proposes this. Often people think that by hot, Jesus is referring to zealous, lively, hardworking Christians, and that by cold, he is referring to lifeless pagans. But this creates a problem. How can Jesus prefer the indifferent pagan to the backslidden, lukewarm Christian? Granted, the latter is bad, but is it really the case that Jesus would prefer his lukewarm people to be in blatant unbelief? This seems highly unlikely. So there's a little bit of debate about what's really going on here at the Laodicean church. And I'm not going to solve that issue. But I think it's kind of missing the point that whatever is going on, something's wrong. And it needs to be corrected and fixed. But considering those thoughts, let's, let's take a little uh, look, uh, closer look here at verse 15. That uh, phrase where it says, you are neither cold or hot. And I mentioned, and we saw on the map here, that Colossae or uh, Laodicea is located there between Colossae and Hierapolis. It's very interesting looking at the geography here. 
And there's some things that really help us understand what Jesus is saying. I mentioned that Laodicea did not have its own water source. It was up on a plateau, up in the valley there. It would, the Lycus River would usually dry up. So during the summer, uh, they wouldn't really have um, a really water supply from the Lycus River. They would get some water from the mountains there to the south of them. But really, they had to pipe in all of their water. They didn't have their own water. So here's this rich, wealthy city that doesn't have its own water supply. But in contrast, Colossae, there to the east, was known for its refreshingly cold springs of water. And Hierapolis, to the north, was known for its healing hot springs. And so you have these two cities, these sister cities, if you will, of Laodicea, to the north and to the east, that are known for their refreshing cold waters, or in contrast, their healing hot waters. And here's Laodicea that has no water of its own. And it was lukewarm. Why? Because it would have to import its water from the other cities or from the mountains. And so they have, there's even archaeological evidence of aqueducts that were used to bring water into Laodicea. And so you can imagine if it's coming down from Hierapolis, you have the hot springs that's going through the aqueduct. And by the time it gets to the city of Laodicea, you have these tepid, chalky, sulfuric waters that are not palatable. Or by contrast, if, it, if they had water coming from Colossae, by the time it got to Laodicea, it also would be lukewarm. And as it, if it traveled through the aqueduct, it's picking up stone as it goes through these stone pipes and it's getting chalky and just unsuited for drinking. And, and when Jesus, Jesus is using this well-known fact about Laodicea to point out to the Laodicean church, this is what you are like. You are like your water. So in verse 16, he says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. In other words, just like your imported tepid waters that are only good for emetic purposes, that is vomiting, you know, if you got food poisoning, then you could drink the water and maybe it would, you know, bring some healing. But that was the only time it would bring healing. Unlike those, or like those waters, your lack of faithfulness makes me sick. Or simply, you make me sick. I couldn't help but think of the movie from the, from the 90s, The Little Rascals. You guys remember that movie with Alfalfa? He's in trouble because he ended up being interested in a girl, so he got put on timeout to watch the car, and he's up there, and Buckwheat and Porky come over, and they're babysitting him, basically, and they, he says, uh, you know, how's Darla doing? And they say, you're not allowed to see Darla. He's like, I, I just want to write a letter. Can you give it to her? And like, we're not allowed to deliver love notes. And Alpha says, Alpha says no, this is going to be a hate note. And he starts writing this letter, and he writes something else, but what he says out loud is, you guys remember? You might even be able to quote it with me. Dear Darla, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. Your scum between my toes. Love, alfalfa. So he says that out loud. He gives it to Buckwheat and Porky to take to Darla. The next scene, they're standing there in front of Darla, and she's like, what's up, boys? And, and they're like, we have a note 
and they're looking for it and they're pulling, you know, string out of their pockets and they can't find it and Porky's like wiping his nose and sneezing and then he pulls out the piece of paper and he blows his nose in it and, and then he realizes, oh, that was the letter. And Darla's like, what's going on? And Buckwheat saw, it's okay. I remember what it says. And he re- reads it verbatim from what Alfalfa said. Dear Darla. Dear Darla. It's so good, right? Dear, dear Darla, uh, I hate your stinking guts. You make me vomit. You are the scum between my toes. Love Alfalfa. She gets angry and smashes a can there. But in a lot of ways, it seems like this is what the Lord, you know, uh, more soberly and seriously is saying to the church in Laodicea. He sees their deeds or their lack of faithfulness, and he's repulsed by it. He is sickened, he's nauseated that these people who claim to know him are living apart from him, and they are self-reliant upon the own, their their own wealth that they have amassed for themselves. And he brings that up here in the next verse, verse 17. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Some ways it can be translated as, I am rich and by my riches I have attained wealth. In other words, not only did I, not only am I rich, but I got my riches myself. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What a contrast to the church in Smyrna. Remember, the church in Smyrna experienced physical poverty. But the Lord said, you're poor, but you are rich. Here he says to Laodicea, you think you're rich, but you are poor. In their poverty, they were rich in Smyrna. But in the church of extravagant wealth, they were actually destitute. And it was because of their self-reliance, their lack of faith. Again, it wasn't a bad thing to have riches. It was that they didn't need God. They didn't think they needed God because of their riches. Someone has said, the witless are all paupers. doesn't matter how much money you have. If you're not sensible to the truth, then you yourself are poor. One commentator says, in so many ways we have exchanged influence for affluence, concern for comfort, and passion for passivity. Our physical prosperity and resulting self-sufficiency can mask the fact that we're spiritually wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. In verse 18, Jesus has an exhortation to the church in Laodicea. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Remember, he said they were poor, blind, and naked. What? I thought they were wealthy. They had a great textile factory and and fashionable products. They had eye ointments and and medical uh, treatments that were known all over the region to be able to bring healing, especially, specifically to the eyes. And here he says, you may have gold, you might have the finest wool, you might have eye medicine, but you are poor, naked, and blind. So he says, I counsel you to buy from me. Jesus is role-playing as a merchant competing with the culture there. 
And what he has to offer is far superior to their Laodicean trinkets by comparison. And so he says, buy from me. Of course, we know that salvation and, and uh, fellowship and communion with God is free. But he's using this to say, you have a lot of, you think you have a lot of money and you can buy anything. What I'm telling you is to buy from me the things you don't have that you think you have. Gold refined in the fire. Peter tells us that this gold is, that the gold is the gold of genuine faith, resulting in praise, glory, and honor toward Jesus Christ. White clothes to wear, in contrast to their black woolen uh, clothing, garments. The Bible speaks of white clothes as a symbol of the righteousness of Christ. The Laodiceans were naked despite their black woolen garments, but they could be covered from their shame in Jesus' righteousness if they bought white clothes to wear from him. And salve to put on your eyes. They had an ointment, as I mentioned there, for physical eye problems, but they had no remedy for their spiritual blindness. None existed there in Laodicea. It only existed in faith in Jesus. Someone has said, there is no there, is, there are none so blind as those who are unwilling to see. And the Laodiceans were self-deceived, unwilling to see their need for Jesus. So in verse 19, he continues with this. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Those whom I love. This is like the one positive thing he says in the passage to the Laodicean church. And that word love there is interesting. It carries the meaning of the most tender affection. I mentioned the little rascals. And what you might not know is what, what you might not remember is what Alfalfa's letter actually said. It's never said out loud, but you can see, see it as he's writing it. And it says this, Dear Darla, I can't live without you. Really, I'm not kidding. You're Romeo, Alfalfa. Ah! I can't live without you, really, I'm not kidding. Alpha, alpha. Now, Jesus can do just fine without us. So there's not a direct direct application here. But he's not kidding. He is not kidding when he tells us that he loves us. Just a glimpse of the cross reminds us of that truth. Jesus not only tells us that he loves us, but he demonstrated it by laying his life on the cross, laying his life down on the cross for us. That when we look at the cross, just like the the Israelites looked at the bronze serpent upon the pole when they were bitten by the venomous vipers there in the Old Testament, and if they look up and just simply looking, they would be healed. And that's Jesus' invitation to us. Look to me, the crucified Savior. Look to me, the one who laid down his life for you to not only say that I love you, but to demonstrate that I love you. That is the love of God for us. He says, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. There's kind of a nod to uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12 here. It says, my son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves As a father, the son he delights in. There's also, of course, that passage in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 through 8 or so, that talk about the discipline of the Lord to his children. Discipline is never fun in the moment, but it reaps a harvest of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. And so God loves us, and in his love, he rebukes 
and disciplines us. One uh, commentator said, love is never cruel, but it can be severe. Love is never cruel, but it can be severe. And here, Jesus' love toward the Laodiceans is severe. So he gives them this command to be earnest. In other words, show the same amount of passion for me. Laodiceans, show the same amount of passion for me and what I can give you as you have shown for your city and what it has given you. That passion, turn it toward me. And that kind of is what the word repent means. The word repent in the Greek, it's metanoia. And it literally means to have a change of mind, to change your mind. We think of it as meaning turn around. And it does mean that, but it starts with a change of the mind. (laughs) I can get my sons to turn around when I want them to turn around, but that doesn't mean I've changed their mind about what they're resolved to do. So simply turning around isn't repentance. It starts with a change of mind. They have to change their mind. What kind of mind change is it? It involves a turning with remorse, a turning of the mind and a posture of the soul with remorse from sin to God. That's what repentance is. A changing of the posture of the mind and the soul from sin to God. Confession is acknowledging and agreeing with God what it is that we've done wrong, and repentance is then changing our mind about that wrong thing and turning to the Lord in faith. And repentance is necessary in our relationships. It's necessary in our relationships with one another. We have to acknowledge and repent uh, in order to rebuild trust and uh, hopefully receive forgiveness and Uh, It's true in our relationship with others, and it's especially true in our relationship with God. In verse 20, he says, he gives this invitation, which is interesting to to call it an invitation, um, because it's more of an interruption, but it is an invitation. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I read this from a commentator, it just hit me hit me so hard uh, right in right be, right between my right between the eyes of my heart <laughs> listen to this in their blind self-sufficiency they had as it were excommunicated the risen lord from their congregation in an act of unbelievable condescension he requests permission to enter and reestablish fellowship I mentioned this hit deep. Consider this question with me. Where in your heart or life have you excommunicated Jesus? What areas in your heart and or life have you excommunicated Jesus? You know the areas where Jesus has been disallowed where he's been 86th. It made me think of that little booklet. I couldn't find it, but I have it somewhere. My Heart, Christ's Home. If you haven't seen that booklet, it's really small. I encourage you to pick it up. You can order it probably on Amazon. 
my heart, Christ's home. And it basically takes this picture of a, of a house and all the rooms in the house and how Jesus belongs in all of those rooms, but the struggle that the author of the book has in allowing Jesus into certain places in his home. It's very powerful. My heart, Christ's home. As I wrestled with this passage, I found myself convicted on many, many levels, as I mentioned before. It's my desire to bring refreshing, like the cold waters from Colossae, refreshing to others, uh, those in need, and healing, like the hot waters in Hierapolis, to those in need of healing. That's my desire, but what I'm convicted by, and what I knew even going into this passage, is that I do not always do that very well, especially in my own home. I am not always good, I wouldn't even say I'm not often good, at bringing refreshing and healing to the members of my own household. It's that old adage, familiarity breeds contempt. And I lack integrity in this area. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm not a person of integrity. I can be one way to others and a different way at home. And it, it doesn't feel like hypocrisy because I'm not trying to be that way. It's just who I am. I, I'm both of those people. They're both true of me. I'm both a person who desires for God's love to fill my heart and overflow into the lives of others. And I'm also a wretched sinner who has problems doing that. Not just out in the community, but also in, but especially in my own house. And as I tried to boil this down to one thing that I can do better in general, but especially toward my family in particular, I sensed it really came down to just one thing. And it's going to sound very simple. It's going to sound very cliche. But the one thing is love. Love. That's what the Laodiceans lacked. They lacked a love for Jesus and they lacked a love for the needs that were in their community. Not the needs for wealth, because everybody had that but the needs that only Jesus could provide. And so I'm wondering if you'll join me in this resolution. Yesterday I made a resolution to focus my mind on love as my primary motivation when interacting with others, especially my wife and kids. And I'm wondering if you'll join me with this. Maybe for one week, maybe for two weeks or more. I'm going to be back in a couple of weeks, so maybe we can compare notes and tell each other how miserably we failed at doing this. But what if we had love as a banner before our eyes, which we should always have, but what if we were just resolved, at least for a short time, to just have love as the filter through and motivation through which we interact with each other? A selfless, sacrificial love. What if we had that at the forefront of our mind? It's very possible for us. Is it possible for us to focus on that theme in our interactions? It's certainly Jesus' motivation toward us. Notice again Jesus' invitation there as we wrap up. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Now, despite the fact that Jesus had been uninvited to the church in Laodicea, he maintains this invitation toward them and toward us. We're reminded that even when we are faithless, even when we kick Jesus out of areas of our lives, he is faithful. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. He wants to have fellowship with us. Even when we don't want to, even when we tell him we don't want to, even when we act like we do but we don't. He wants to have fellowship with us. He wants 
to share and to eat and to laugh and to cry with us. He wants to spend time with us. And he wants us to spend time with him. After all, this is our eternal destiny. As one commentator said, it's hard not to see in the picture at least the anticipation of future messianic kingdom. All present fellowship with God, all present fellowship with God is a foretaste of eternal felicity. That's what we're going to be doing for all eternity is spending time with Jesus. Can it be our heart's desire now? So let's open the door every time he comes to call. He comes to call. He knocks on the door of our heart. Not just for salvation. That could be an application, sure, but really for fellowship. He wants to have fellowship with us. And he finishes his words to the church in Laodicea, verse 21 and 22. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And you can read into chapter 4 about this glorious throne. That supposedly, according to what Jesus is saying here, we will be sitting on with him and his father in glory. Things will not always be the way they are now. This is an eschatological comment that Jesus is making here. It's all going to come to an end. God will bring the time of iniquity to a close. Everything will end. All of our wares, our gold, our clothing, our medicines, all of that will end. And we will say to those things, just like we sang at the end of that hymn, farewell, farewell, sweet hour of prayer. We will say farewell. Can we say farewell to them right now in the name of Jesus? Not to prayer, but to these things that keep us um, divided from Christ. God will bring an end to the time of antiquity, to the time of distraction from him. This is a great hope to us who believe, but it will be a great horror to those who've trusted in their own righteousness. He closes, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Here again is the refrain which ended the letters to each of the previous six churches. And a commentator says, we are reminded that the messages to the seven historic churches in Asia are at the same time a composite word to to the church, universal throughout time, calls us to a comprehensive warning in which the dangers of losing our first love, denoted in Ephesus, fear of suffering, as we saw in Smyrna, doctrinal compromise in Pergamum, moral compromise in Thyatira, spiritual deadness in Sardis. Philadelphia wasn't condemned by this, but they were encouraged not to fail in holding on, a failure to hold on there in Philadelphia, and lukewarmness here in Laodicea. They're all brought home with amazing relevance for the contemporary church. This was God's word to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and it's God's word to churches today. It's God's word to this church, and it's God's word to each individual in this church We need to have our hearts postured so that we can respond to his word. Please take to heart what's been shared through this letter. And I'm going to try to do the same. And then, like I said, we can compare notes in a couple of weeks, see how that went. 
if we either just forgot about it or we actually employed what we've learned um, through Jesus' word to his churches here. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, God. You saw in your infinite wisdom not to leave us abandoned as orphans, but to be able to reveal yourself to us in ways that despite our faithlessness, despite uh, our seemingly lack of desire at least or inability at most to turn to you and to walk with you faithfully, God, that you have provided for us through your word, through your Holy Spirit, a means to come to you, to return to you, to open the door when you come beckoning to us. Thank you for your mercy, God. Thank you even for your mercy to the church in Laodicea that you loved and that you encouraged to be earnest and to repent. Lord, help us in those areas. All of us have areas where you're calling us to be earnest and to repent and to respond to your love your great affection toward us. You love us. You're not kidding. Help us to respond to that love, Lord. We need your help. I confess, God, I cannot do it. I I don't even want to do it apart from the acknowledgement that you are my Lord and Savior and you are worthy. You are worthy, Jesus, for me to set aside the things of this world and my own selfish pride and ambition to turn to you and to honor you with my life. Help me to do that, to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Man, thank you.